This is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is cold here in the Piney Woods. It is cold. It is not going to be above zero Fahrenheit today at all. It's currently about five below. I haven't actually looked out on the front porch to see what our thermometer says, but the official weather app thermometer is saying it's cold. Let me give you the current temperature according to AccuWeather. So I'll pull it up here real quick. Got to get exit a few other apps. Okay. 12 below. 12 below is the current temperature here at Squirrel Manor. Oh, yes. Um, it, it's weather like this for which dirty words were created. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I have, uh, at some point today, I will have to go out to the mailbox to check the mail. But. Yeah, it and, and even better, it like might hit close to minus 40 tonight. Yep. This one says minus 25. Another app of mine says minus 38. So interesting, <laughs> the discrepancy between them. But at the same time, it's <laughs> you know, 20 below, 38 below, you know, who cares, right? You know, what's, what's 18 degrees among friends? It's cold out. Um, luckily, when it's this cold, it doesn't snow, <laughs> which is a nice thing. So we won't have to go outside and actually shovel. We got the driveway shoveled yesterday afternoon before the temperature dropped out. Um, but yeah, it is cold. It is cold. Sunrise is, gosh, 50 minutes away. So um, usually the temperature drops right before sunrise. And they're saying that by 9 o'clock this morning, it is going to be nine or 14 below. And then it's supposed to warm up to about 8 below will be our high today <laughs> before getting really cold tonight. So yeah, I have no intention of leaving the house. I am very thankful for indoor plumbing and forced air propane heat that keeps Squirrel Manor toasty and comfortable um, and blankets and all that good stuff. I gave uh, Fiona the mouse a couple of extra Kleenexes last night which she has shredded and enlarged her nest so that uh, she's nice and comfy and warm in her, uh, underneath her fake edible log thing um, in a pile of, of shredded Kleenex tissues. And she has plenty of food and water 
and she will be just fine. Although, I don't know what she's complaining about. It's 70 degrees here in the office. So, <laughs> you know, she's got it bad, right? She's got it bad. All right, this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about, including how cold it is here in the Piney Woods. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. I guarantee it. And I did not refill my coffee cup before starting the podcast. So at some point today, you will hear the squeaky lid of my thermos, as I will have to refill my coffee cup before we finish today. What do we got coming up today? Well, we have our scripture reading. We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And it's Friday, so it's Federalist Friday. Federalist number 41 today. And that is our plan ahead of us. And so let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Genesis 23 and Psalm 23. Genesis 23. And Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a sojourner and a foreign resident among you. 
Give me a possession for a burial site among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial sites. None of us will refuse you his burial sites for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land of the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your desire for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Mechpelah, which belongs to him, which is at the end of his field. For the full price let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even all of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please hear me, I will give the silver for the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, hear me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between me and you? So bury your dead. So Abraham heard Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Mechpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field, that were within all the confines of its border, were deeded over to Abraham as purchased in the sight of the sons of Heth, before all who came in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a possession, for a burial site, by the sons of Heth. And now Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. This is the word of the Lord. And now our reading from Daily Readings in the Life of Christ by John MacArthur. Today's devotional is entitled, Worry is Not a Trivial Sin. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Matthew 6.30 it seems odd, does it not, that we who have freely put our eternal destiny into Christ's hands would at times refuse to believe that he will provide what we need to eat, drink, and wear. 
Faith should extend to the ordinary just as it extends to the extraordinary. Worry is not a trivial sin because it strikes a blow both at God's love and integrity. Worry declares our Heavenly Father to be untrustworthy in His Word and His promises, to claim belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, yet in the next moment express worry is to deny that very belief. Worry reveals that we are mastered by our circumstances and not by our own finite perspective and understanding. And, excuse me, worry reveals that we are mastered by our circumstances and by our own finite perspective and understanding rather than God's word. Worry is therefore not only debilitating and destructive, but also maligns and impugns God. When a believer is not fresh in the word every day so that God is in his mind and heart, then Satan moves into the vacuum and plants worry, and worry pushes the Lord even further from our minds. Paul counsels us that he did, as he did the Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. Ask yourself, have you ever seriously considered the unspoken statement you make when worry defines your reaction to life's uncertainties? If you understood the root beliefs that fuel the fires of anxiety, what effect would this knowledge have on your level of fretfulness? All right. Well, we will take a short moment here where I will jabber at you while squeak, squeak, and hiss, pop. Refill my coffee. <laughs> I am once again drinking from my Nova Galactic bug that I got for Christmas. If you know, you know. All right, it is Federalist Friday, and we are looking at Federalist number 41 of the 85 Federalist Papers. Today's is entitled, General View of the Powers Conferred by the Constitution. For the Independent Journal, author James Madison. To the people of the state of New York, the Constitution proposed by the Convention may be considered under two general points of view. The first relates to the sum or quantity of power which it vests in the government, including the restraints imposed on the states, the second to the particular structure of the government and the distribution of this power among its several branches. Under the first view of the subject, two important questions arise. Whether any part of the powers transferred to the general government be unnecessary or improper. And two, whether the entire mass of them be dangerous to the portion of jurisdiction left to the several states. Is the aggregate power of the general government greater than ought to have been vested in it? This is the first question. It cannot have escaped those who have attended with candor to the arguments employed against the extensive powers of the government that the authors of them have very, little, have very little considered 
how far these powers were necessary means of attaining a necessary end. They have chosen rather to dwell on the inconveniences which much must be unavoidably blended with all political advantages and on the possible abuses which must be incident to every power or trust of which a beneficial use can be made. This method of handling the subject cannot impose on the good sense of the people of America. It may display the subtlety of the writer. It may open a boundless field for rhetoric and declamation. It may inflame the passions of the unthinking and may confirm the prejudices of the misthinking. But cool and candid people will at once reflect that the purest of human blessings must have a portion of alloy in them, that the choice must always be made, if not of the lesser evil, at least of the greater, not the perfect good, and that in every political institution a power to advance the public happiness involves a discretion which may be misapplied and abused. They will see, therefore, that in all cases where power is to be conferred, the point first to be decided is whether such a power be necessary to the public good. As the next will be, in case of an affirmative decision, to guard as effectually as possible against a perversion of the power to the public detriment. That we may form a correct judgment on this subject, it will be proper to review the several powers conferred on the government of the Union, and that this may be more conveniently done, they may be reduced into different classes as they relate to the following different sub objects. 1. Security against foreign danger. 2. Regulation of the intercourse within, with foreign nations. 3. Maintenance of harmony and proper intercourse among the states. 4. Certain miscellaneous objects of general utility. 5. Restraint of the states from certain injurious acts. 6. Provisions for giving due efficacy to all these powers. The powers falling within the first class are those of declaring war and granting letters of mark, of providing armies and fleets, of regulating and calling forth the militia, of levying and borrowing money. Security against foreign danger is one of the primitive objects of civil society. It is an avowed and essential object of the American Union. The powers requisite for attaining it must be effectually confided to the federal councils. Is the power of declaring war necessary? No man will answer this question in the negative. It would be superfluous, therefore, to enter into a proof of the affirmative. The existing Confederation establishes this power in the most ample form. Is the power of raising armies and equipping fleets necessary? This is involved in the foregoing power. It is involved in the power of self-defense. But was it necessary to give an indefinite power of raising troops, as well as providing fleets, and of maintaining both in peace as well as in war? The answer to these questions has been too far anticipated in another place to admit an extensive discussion of them in this place. The answer, indeed, seems to be so obvious and conclusive as scarcely to justify such a discussion in the first place. With what color of propriety could the force necessary for defense be limited by those who cannot limit the force of offense? If a federal constitution 
could chain the ambition or set the bounds to the exertions of all other nations, then indeed might it prudently chain the discretion of its own government and set bounds to the exertions for its own safety. How could a readiness for war in time of peace be safely prohibited unless we could prohibit in like manner the preparations, the establishments of every hostile nation? The means of security can only be regulated by the means and the danger of attack. They will, in fact, be ever determined by those rules and by no others. It is in vain to oppose constitutional barriers to the impulse of self-preservation. It is worse than in vain because it plants in the Constitution itself necessary usurpations of power, every precedence of which is a germ of unnecessary and multiplied repetitions. If one nation maintains con consistent, excuse me, if one nation maintains constantly a disciplined army ready for the service of ambition or revenge, it obliges the most pacific nations who may be within the reach of its enterprises to take corresponding precautions. The 15th century was the unhappy epoch of military establishments in the time of peace. They were introduced by Charles, Charles VII of France. All Europe has followed or been forced into the example. Had the example not been followed by other nations, all Europe must long ago have worn the chains of a universal monarch. Were every nation except France now to disband its peace establishments, the same, might, same event might follow. The veteran legions of Rome were an overmatch for the undisciplined valor of all other nations and rendered her the mistress of the world. Not the less true is it that the liberties of Rome provided the final victim to her military triumphs and that the liberties of Europe, as far as they ever existed, have, with few exceptions, been the price of her military establishments. A standing force, therefore, is a dangerous and at the same time that it may be a necessary provision. On the smallest scale, it has its inconveniences. On an extensive scale, its consequences may be fatal. On any scale, it is an object of laudable circumspection and precaution. A wise nation will combine all these considerations and, whilst it does not rashly preclude itself from any resource which may become essential to its safety, will exert all its prudence in diminishing both the, necess the necessity and the danger of resorting to one which may be inauspicious to its liberties. The clearest marks of this prudence are stamped on the proposed Constitution. The Union itself, which it cements and secures, destroys every pretext for a military establishment which could be dangerous. America united with a handful of troops or without a single soldier, exhibits a more forbidding posture to foreign ambition than America disunited with 100,000 veterans ready for combat. It was remarked on a former occasion that the want of this pretext had saved the liberties of one nation in Europe, being rendered by her insular situation and her maritime resources impregnable to the armies of her neighbors, the rulers of Great Britain have never been able, by real or artificial dangers, to cheat the public into an extensive peace establishment. 
the distance of the United States from the powerful nations of the world gives them the same happy security. A dangerous establishment can never be necessary or plausible so long as they continue a united, continue a united people. But let it never for a moment be forgotten that they are indebted for this advantage to the Union alone. The moment of its dissolution will be the date of a new order of things. The fears of the weaker or the ambition of the stronger states or confederacies will set the same example in the new as Charles VII did in the old world. The example will be followed here from the same motives which produced universal imitation there. Instead of deriving from our situation the precious advantage which Great Britain has derived from hers, the face of America will be put will be but a copy of that of the continent of Europe. It will present liberty everywhere crushed between standing armies and perpetual taxes. The fortunes of disunited America will be even more disastrous than those of Europe. The sources of evil in the latter are confined to her own limits. No superior powers of another quarter of the globe intrigue among her rival nations, inflame their mutual animosities, and render them the instruments of foreign ambition, jealousy, and revenge. In America, the miseries springing from her internal jealousies, contentions, and wars would form a part only of her lot. A plentiful addition of evils would have their source in that relation in which Europe stands to this quarter of the earth, and which no other quarter of the earth bears to Europe. This picture of the consequences of disunion cannot be too highly colored, or too often exhibited. Every man who loves peace, every man who loves his country, every man who loves liberty, ought to have it ever before his eyes, that he may cherish in his heart a due attachment to the union of America, and be able to set a due value on the means of preserving it. Next to the effectual establishments of the union, the best possible precaution against danger from standing armies is a limitation of the term for which revenue may be appropriated to their support. This precaution the Constitution has prudently added. I will not repeat here the observations which I flatter myself have been placed to this subject I which I flatter myself, have placed this subject in a just and satisfactory light, but it may not be improper to take notice of an argument against this part of the Constitution, which has been drawn from the policy and practice of Great Britain. It is said that the continuance of an army in that kingdom requires an annual vote of the legislature, whereas the American Constitution has lengthened this critical period to two years. This is the form in which the comparison is usually stated to the public. But is it a just form? Is it a fair comparison? Does the British Constitution restrain the parliamentary discretion to one year? Does the American impose on Congress appropriations for two years? On the contrary, it cannot be unknown to the authors of the fallacy themselves that the British Constitution fi fixes no limit whatever to the discretion of the legislature, and that the American ties down the legislature to two years as the longest admissible term, had the argument from the British example been truly stated, it would have stood thus. The term for which supplies may be appropriated to the army established, though unlimited by the British Constitution, has nevertheless in practice 
been limited by parliamentary discretion to a single year. Now, if in Great Britain, where the House of Commons is elected for seven years, where so great a proportion of the members are elected by so small a proportion of the people, where the electors are so corrupted by their representatives, and the representatives so corrupted by the crown, the representative body can possess a power to make appropriations to the army for an indefinite term without desiring or without daring to extend the term beyond a single year. Ought not suspicion itself to blush in pretending that the representatives of the United States elected freely by the whole body of the people every second year cannot be safely entrusted with the discretions over such appropriations expressly limited to the short period of two years. A bad cause seldom fails to betray itself. Of this truth, the management of the opposition to the federal government is an unvaried exemplification. But among all the blunders which have been committed, none is more striking than the attempt to enlist on, the, on that side the prudent jealousy entertained by the people of standing armies. The attempt has awakened fully the public attention to that important subject and has led to investigations which much terminate in a thorough and universal conviction. Not only that the Constitution has provided the most effectual guards against the danger from that quarter, but that nothing short of a Constitution fully adequate to the national defense and preservation of the Union can save America from as many standing armies as it may be split into states or confederacies. And from such a progressive argumentation of these establishments in each as will render them as burdensome to the proprieties and ominous to the liberties of the people as any establishment that can become necessary under a united and efficient government must be tolerable to the former and safe to the latter. The palpable necessity of the power to provide and maintain a navy has protected that part of the Constitution against a spirit of censure which has spared few other parts. It must indeed be numbered among the greatest blessings of America that as her union will be the only source of her maritime strength, so this must be a principal source of her security against danger from abroad. In this respect, our situation bears another likeness to the insular advantage of Great Britain. The batteries most capable of repelling foreign enterprises on our safety are happily such as can never be turned by perfidious government against our liberties. The inhabitants of the Atlantic frontier are all of them deeply interested in this provision for naval protection. And if they have hitherto been suffered to sleep quietly in their beds, if their property has remained safe against the predatory spirit of licentious adventurers, if their maritime towns have not yet been compelled to ransom themselves from the terrors of a conflagration by yielding to the exaction, exactions of daring and sudden invaders, these instances of good fortune are not to be ascribed to the capacity of the existing government for the protection of those whom, call, whom it claims allegiance, but to causes that are fugitive and fallacious. If we, except perhaps Virginia and Maryland, which are particularly vulnerable on their eastern frontiers, no part of the Union ought to feel more anxiety on this subject than New York. Her seacoast is extensive. A very important district of the state is an island. The state itself is P 
penetrated by a large navigable river for more than 50 leagues. The great emporium of its commerce, the great reservoir of its wealth, lies every moment at the mercy of events and may almost be regarded as a hostage for ignominious compliances with dictates of a foreign enemy, or even with the rapacious demands of pirates and barbarians. Should a war be the result of the, of the precarious situation of European affairs, and all the unruly passions attending it be let loose on the ocean, our escape from insults and depreda depredations, not only on that element, but every other part of others boarding on it, will be truly miraculous. In the present condition of America, the states more immediately exposed to these calamities have nothing to hope from the phantom of a general government, which now exists. And if their single resources were equal to the task of fortifying themselves against the danger, the object to be protected would be almost consumed by the means of protecting them. The power of regulating and calling forth the militia has been already sufficiently vindicated and explained. The power of levying and borrowing money being the sinew of that which is to be exerted in the national defense, is properly thrown into the same class with it. This power also has been examined already with much attention and has, I trust, been clearly shown to be necessary, both in the extent and form given to it by the Constitution. I will address one additional reflection only to those who contend that the power ought to have been restrained to an external taxation by which they mean taxes on articles imported from other countries. It cannot be doubted that this will always be a valuable source of revenue, that for a considerable time it must be a principal source, that at this moment it is an essential one. But we may form may excuse me but we may form very mistaken ideas on this subject. If we do not call to mind in our calculations that the extent of revenue drawn from foreign commerce must vary with the variations, both in extent and the kind of imports, and that those variations do not correspond with the progress of population, which must be the general measure of public wants. As long as agriculture continues the sole field of labor, the importation of manufacturers must increase as the consumers multiply. As soon as domestic manufacturers are begun by the hands not called for by agriculture, the important manufacturers will decrease, the imported manufacturers will decrease as the number of people increase. In a more remote stage, the imports may consist in a considerable part of raw materials which will be wrought into articles for exportation and will therefore require rather the encouragement of bounties than to be loaded with discouraging duties. A system of government meant for duration ought to contemplate these revolutions and be able to accommodate itself to them. Some, who have not denied the necessity of the power of taxation, have grounded a very fierce attack against the Constitution on the language in which it is defined. It has been urged and echoed that the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States amounts to an unlimited commission 
to exercise every power which may be alleged to be necessary for the common defense or general welfare. No stronger proof could be given of the distress under which these writers labor for objections than their stooping to such a misconstruction. Had no other enumeration or definition of the powers of Congress been found in the Constitution than the general expression just cited, the authors of the objection might have some color for it, though it would have been difficult to find a reason for so awkward a form of describing an authority to legislate in all possible cases. A power to destroy the freedom of the press, the trial by jury, or even to regulate the course of dissents or the forms of conveyances must be very singularly expressed by the terms to raise money for the general welfare. But what color can the objection have when a specification of the objects alluded to by these general terms immediately follows and is not even separated by a long pause by a longer pause than a semicolon. If the different parts of the same instrument ought to be so expounded as to give meaning to every part which will bear it, shall one part of the same sentence be excluded altogether from a share in the meaning? And shall the more doubtful and indefinite terms be retained in their full extent and the clear and precise expressions be denied any, any signification whatsoever? For what purpose could the enumeration of particular powers be inserted if these and all others were meant to be included in the preceding general power? Nothing is more natural nor common than first to use a general phrase and then to explain and qualify it by a recital of particulars. But the idea of enumeration of particulars, which neither explain nor qualify the general meaning, and can have no other effect than to confound and mislead, is an absurdity which, as we are reduced to the dilemma of charging either on the authors or the objection or on the authors of the Constitution, we must take the liberty of supposing had not its origin with the latter. The objection here is the more extraordinary, as it appears that the language used by the Convention is a copy from the Articles of Confederation. The objects of the Union among the states, as described in Article, Article 3rd, are their common defense, security of their liberties, and mutual and general welfare. The terms of Article 8 are still more identical. Our char all charges of war and all other expenses that shall be incurred for the common defense or general welfare and allowed by the United States in Congress shall be defrayed out of a common treasury, etc. A similar language again occurs in Article 9th. Construe either of those articles by the rules which would justify the construction put on the new Constitution, and they vest in the existing Congress a power to legislate in all cases whatsoever. But what would have been thought of that assembly if, attaching themselves to these general expressions and disregarding the specifications which ascertain and limit their import, they had exercised an unlimited power of providing for the common defense and general welfare. I appeal to the objectors themselves whether they would, in that case, have employed the same reasoning in justification of Congress as they now make use of against the Convention. How difficult is it for error to escape its own condemnation? Publius. 
That's a good one. There's a lot of good stuff in that one. All right, let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Colic for the First Sunday of Epiphany. Eternal Father, at the baptism of Jesus, who revealed him to be your Son, and your Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, grant that we who are born again by water and the Spirit may be faithful as your adopted children, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Colic for Endurance. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not, went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, through Jesus Christ your Son, our Lord. Amen. And for the unrepentant we pray. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven, given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home, and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, that is Squirrel Chatter for this Friday, the 12th day of January. I bid you a good and warm weekend. If you are anywhere within this Arctic blast that uh, has encompassed the Piney Woods, the ARN Studios, and Squirrel Manor, I hope you stay warm. Um, but even this cold Arctic weather is not going to keep us from church on Sunday, and it shouldn't keep you from church on Sunday either. You know, if you have to leave earlier because of the bad weather, leave earlier. Chick-fil-A closed early last night. Shame. But church will be open on Sunday. So make sure you get to church. Remember, do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here on Monday for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Have a great day at church on Sunday. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.